Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Health for All podcast. I'm Dr. Tapas Mukherjee, Medical Director at the Havas Links Group. In today's episode, we have a brilliant panel discussion. But before we move into sharing the panel, I want to talk about the intentions for the Health for All work we are doing. Health for All is a platform to tackle the ongoing challenges around equity, diversity and inclusivity within healthcare. It's not appropriate for us to hold ourselves up as authorities in this field, so our intention is to start an honest dialogue about the impact that poor diversity has across all aspects of healthcare, from early stage research to diagnosis, disease management and ongoing support, and how healthcare communications can play a role in helping to redress that imbalance. Because we strongly believe healthcare communications and advertising can help improve health inequalities across society as a whole. Inequalities associated with social, cultural, education, gender, ethnicity, religion and age persist within healthcare. From the 50% greater risk of adverse drug reactions reported in women compared to men, to the huge and unacceptable discrepancies seen in COVID-19 deaths in ethnic and racial minority groups in the US and UK, to the reluctance to collect data on sexual and gender identity, even when it could have a direct relevance to patient outcomes. Inequalities in treatment and care are part of the landscape facing those working in the healthcare space. The more we have spoken to committed people who invest so much of their time addressing some of the inequalities in healthcare, the more we realised it will take all of us working together to create lasting change. We're using Health for All as a platform to amplify the voices of those working relentlessly to overcome health disparities and inequalities. The voices of the researchers who are challenging the representation in clinical trials and medical research. The charities advocating for the companies we have previously left behind. The voluntary group of doctors, students and translators who made COVID-19 information and guidance accessible in over 35 languages. As we move from a patient-centric to a person-centred approach to care, human connection is fundamental to ensure that fewer people are left behind. As we embark on this journey to start an honest and open conversation around the human side of healthcare, we can only hope that one day we live in a world where healthcare is set up to serve all of society so that no one is left behind. To learn more about Health for All and to read about some of the stories we just mentioned, you can head over to the website noonelefbehind.co.uk. We've made the link available in the episode's show notes. We hope you get as much enjoyment from reading the stories as we did from writing them. We launched Health for All internally for our employees at Havas Links Group a few weeks ago. And as part of that event, we were joined by six of our contributors for a panel discussion that explored this topic in a little more detail. It really is an excellent conversation. So we hope you enjoy. We are super lucky to be joined by six amazing different individuals who each bring a different lens to diversity today. 
Uh, we're going to bring them on one by one, and I'm just going to give them a brief introduction. So the first person we're going to introduce is Aurora Archer. She's the founder and the CEO of the Bellatrix Group and the Optin. And I love the way she described herself with, uh, in an interview, which if you haven't seen, I'm sure Emily can circulate uh, later after this. Um, but she describes herself as an Afro-Latina cultural strategist. It's not very often, or perhaps it's not often enough, that we hear the phrase cultural strategy. Um, so that's something to think about. And she says that she has a real passion for representing the voices that are not in the room, which is something um, that I think we can all do more of. She's joined by her colleague, Pamela Rate. And Pamela Rate is also the founder and CSO at the Bellatrix Group. She's another strategist with years of design and digital transformation experience, but she also has a long history of innovation and mentoring um, individuals um, around uh, the, the, the organizations where she's worked and she's even created global mentorship programs. And so they'll be both um, advising us and Pharma in terms of how we can be changing our approach um, as part of this discussion. So welcome to both of you. Um, we're also joined by John Hammond, who I think we're all getting to know. There's a beautiful um, background story to John. So if you haven't read it, please do. But he oversees the Rainbow Cafe, a project for the LGBTQ community affected by dementia or memory loss. And at first you may think, why such a niche project? But I urge you to go and read John's background story um, and then all will become clear. Uh, but he also works at Switchboard or it's enabled through Switchboard, which is a well-established charity. And I think we'll hear a little bit about this as we go through the discussion. Um, and then we go into uh, a slightly more academic world in the form of Professor Andrew Biankin who is sitting in an incredible study that we were all admiring earlier. Um, and uh, there he is waving, thank you and welcome. So um, Professor Andrew Biankin, not to um, embarrass him, but I'm just gonna rattle through a few of his achievements and then you'll realize that we're very lucky um, to have his expertise on the panel today. He's the Regis Chair of Surgery at the University of Glasgow, a Cancer Research UK Clinical Scientist, a Wellcome Trust Senior Investigator, and a Fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh and the Academy of Medical Sciences. He's also authored over 160 articles um, and his personal area of research is around cancer genomics and precision medicine. I always do wonder whether you were a huge underachiever as a child and you've been forever trying to um, catch up perhaps, but um, I think hopefully you've got there now. So welcome to our panel. Um, and I wouldn't want to follow that unless I had an OBE, but fortunately, our next person, I was going to say contestant, this was turning into almost a game show introduction, but our next panelist is Professor Eleanor Stride, OBE, recognized for her services to biomedical engineering. So she's the statutory professor of biomaterials at the University of Oxford's Institute of Biomedical in, uh, Engineering. Um, and although her focus is on drug delivery systems engineering and biomedical uh, ultrasonics, a lot of her applications have interesting um, sort of uh, consequences and implications for women's health, an area that we all know has been underrepresented in the past. And then finally, uh, to round off the panel, we've got Shiron Rajendran, who's a second year medical student at the University of Southampton, joining us from the hospital and still dressed in scrubs um, to prove that he is so dedicated to the cause of both Habas and the NHS, so well done. But interesting backstory, which I think some of you will know, that when the UK went into lockdown, he was troubled by the amount of misinformation that was circulating, particularly in other languages, Tamil, for example. Um, I've experienced this as well in Bengali, 
all sorts of nonsense which was being shared on social media, WhatsApp with our parents. So he took it upon himself to make a set of COVID infographics because the NHS in English um, was not perhaps doing enough to reach out to those communities. And his work has now been translated into over 30 languages. So great to have all of you on the panel. Welcome, everybody. I'm going to start with you, Shiran, if I may. So we all need to be thinking about diversity in healthcare, of course. But um, what are some of the problems, do you think, that are arising because of the lack of focus on diversity to date in healthcare, because of those inequalities? Can you give us some examples, perhaps from your own experience? Yeah, um, good question. Nice to meet everyone. Um, and I'm Sean. And so I guess uh, to start off, the biggest question is why does it matter in medicine and healthcare? And if we think about medicine, it's about trying to provide the best possible care for patients, that's all patients and their needs. And diversity is one aspect, but it's all about inclusion. It's moving from looking at the needs of some patients to looking at the needs of all patients. Um, one example would be, for example, language needs, and that's the area that I've focused on, but other areas are, if we have a more diverse workforce, then patients can form better relationships with these healthcare professionals. They know that they can understand their needs and better support them. Um, and, and as was mentioned in the introduction, patients want to feel seen and listened to and acknowledged and if, if the staff don't represent that then it's very difficult for them to form those connections um so language if i go back to languages uh, this is why i started my project at the beginning of the pandemic we saw that our friends and family receiving vast amounts of misinformation on platforms like whatsapp and viber and it's just because people are desperate for information times are very troubling and they still are and people still are desperate for this information but this lack of accessible resources for people in their own languages, apart from English, has meant that fake news can spread quite virally. And it's a problem that, you know, the social media platforms such as Facebook and Twitter are now starting to get their hands, uh, you know, heads around. Um, so we thought, what can we do as medical professionals? So myself and a junior doctor friend of mine, um, we thought, okay, it's very easy to take the government guidance and create it into something that's really easy to understand, visual and trans. Related. So that's how it started. That's how COVID-19 started. Just English and Tamil, no interpretation, just taking guide, government guidance and turning it into, into visual infographics. And within a few weeks, we had friends and family saying, can you put it in Punjabi, Bengali, Urdu, Somali, you know, you, you name it, the, the languages are coming through. And we thought there's a real need because according to the ONS um, census in 2011, 4.2 million people in England and Wales uh, English is not their main language. So that's 4.2 million people that are potentially not being able to access information that they need to better look after themselves and their loved ones. And we felt sure, that was can I, can I just ask, was that, uh, apart from the direct translation, just thinking about like Aurora's role, for example, with that cultural strategy, did you try to also change the, the pictures? Did you, you know, to, to be culturally appropriate or, or was that a consideration in what you did? Yeah, definitely. I think there's no one side fits all, especially with the communities that we deal with and work with. So I'd say the easiest part of my role and our organization's role is producing the resources. We've gotten really good at that. The, the, oh. the more challenging part, the one that requires attention is forming relationships with the community. So we work very closely with community organizations who are on the ground to better understand their needs. Because there's no point me saying I understand the needs of British Somalis because I'm a, I'm a British Tamil individual. So we work closely with communities that can feed us back, give us feedback. So we do have that feedback loop. And as we grow, we tend to, we're taking on more organizations. 
Um, but it's a very important point. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, let's thank you for that. And a, a lot of things that you've said, we hopefully will come back to as well. But for, for the next question, I'd like to go to John. And, and John, I just want to know from your point of view, what does it mean when we talk about diversity in healthcare? And where are we now in terms of fairness, um, in terms of how we're treating people medically? That's a big question. Thank you. Um, uh, and um, I guess I can answer it from, again, my sort of lens of um, working um, in a community organisation, a charitable organisation with the LGBTQ plus communities affected by dementia. Um, so I hear stories um, from the, the people I support and, and members of the kind of community um, that the um, healthcare services that are available are, are often not appropriate, not representative, um, fearful of discrimination, for example. Um, we talked about the important use of language. So increasingly, um, as sort of uh, groups of people that are coming through um, our charitable service, we're, we're seeing more and more trans um, individuals coming through um, who really don't have... Um, kind of representation that means a lot to them and just thinking I guess even back to um, the, the, the earlier presentation about the hearts of women and this idea of misdiagnosed um, receiving the right treatment less likely to be referred more likely to die um, when you when you layer on top of that um, trans identity or um, sexual orientation gender gender status um, there's that again that sort of interlocking intersecting um, idea of discrimination and marginalisation. Um, no, no, so, we were chatting earlier, albeit by email, about the fact that, um, you know, you sort of alerted me to the fact that a lot of the people in the LGBTQ community um, have an overrepresentation of mental health problems, smoking, alcohol dependency, which I don't think or I don't remember being taught uh, and, you know, it's something that you probably get from discussion, but it's not something I would say Chiron or I in relatively recent times are aware of. And so if, unless we're looking for those things, perhaps we don't um, offer the right support in that respect. But there, can you think of other examples uh, where the care is suffering because of, you know, a lack of awareness um, of the, the background of the LG and the needs of the of the community? Well, I've been thinking a lot about um, our charity, our, our organisation provides a lot of psychosocial support to the community, to the LGBTQ community. But of course, each of those LGBTQ, um, it's, it's easy to acronym, you know, put together an acronym for a, for a community, but each of those aspects of that community, it's a spectrum of community, it's a complex yeah. um, kind of requirement within individuals. And, and I think that comes back down to the idea of person-centred care. And, and whether person-centred care truly means that when you're from a marginalised minority community and how difficult that is for healthcare services to truly deliver that. Um, and of course, we aspire to that. We all do. Uh, in both sort of primary, secondary, tertiary care, we all try to do that. It's very difficult when um, people are living very complex, um, kind of intersecting and uh, interlocking um, identities that's very hard and I think more and more about the kind of preventative health measure um, for dementia I guess is my kind of specialism in, in, in my role within the LGBTQ communities and um, as you say that, that idea that many of those I now have been identified as potentially modifiable risk factors so things like 
depression, social isolation, physical inactivity, smoking, alcohol intake are all disproportionately affected in the LGBTQ community and disproportionately further in the, in the trans community. So the thing you said, which is really interesting, actually, about um, so I remember last year this phrase came about about BAME, B-A-M-E, and the, the fact that, you know, in COVID, BAME people had more risk and, and so on, maybe had susceptibility to, to, the, to the virus and, and things like this. And it was interesting and slightly awkward in that you had blacks and Asians being sort of paired together in the same sentence, because normally I would say we're not culturally, perhaps necessarily. Um, and it, it's just, it's interesting when you were saying that actually everyone within the LGBTQ has a different sort of need, has a different personality. And to represent someone by just a single letter, it, it, it's already wrong in a way to begin with. You're already going to lose from that viewpoint. So, I mean, maybe John, Ellen, I'd like to bring you in as well. Um, like, how do we even start to think about doing it correctly then? If we know that there are these biases, if we know that there are these inequalities, why do we still accept them? And why has medical care not changed its approach? Maybe, I don't know, let's, let's see if that's something you'd like to take on. Sure. Um, so, I mean, this was something, I, I'm an engineer by background, so I, I collaborate very closely with clinicians to try and translate our research into the clinic. And it, this is something I think I'm acutely aware of working with cardiovascular surgeons in Oxford, who they run something called the Collaborating Centre for Values-Based Practice. And the whole idea is to make sure that you consider all of these factors for patients as an individual when you are diagnosing them, when you are talking with them about what treatments are suitable. And I think it's absolutely critical. The fact you just mentioned, this wasn't even in the curriculum when you were training as medics, and I don't think it is. And you know, the, we, we have medical students come through our lab, and when you talk to them about what they cover, it's totally missing. Um, and I think that's something we need to address is to even put it on people's radar, because I don't think people are deliberately ignoring it and actively suppressing it. They're just not aware it's something that needs to be considered. And even, even from a purely scientific perspective, if you ignore key variables in your experiment, you're doing bad science. Yeah, that's a really interesting um, idea that we have to almost retrain how we think. Um, or, but we're, not, we're, we're taught how to think in certain ways, I'd say, from med school. But the way we're taught perhaps now is um, outdated, uh, you know, which is a really interesting idea. Um, Andrew. I will come to you next. So moving slightly away from the focus on treating, let's look at clinical trials. So wh where do you think we are in terms of diversity and addressing some of those issues today? And, and how has that changed, do you think, in the last, if it has, uh, with, for example, the pandemic? I think, I think Tapas, I think you, you're absolutely right. We, we, we know this diversity exists. We know these differences exist. We now know that the Chinese FDA uh, will not simply take on the US FDA approvals and vice versa. Uh, because, we, you know, we know, for example, um, you know, the, uh, even just culturally, Asian friends who have alcohol dehydrogenase deficiency, uh, unfortunately for them, but it's a cheap date. So it was a, a yin and a yang. But the similar things happens with metabolizing drugs. There are some drugs that have been thrown out but uh, are used in, uh, in Southeast Asia because of the, the, the base of the, the enzymes, the way you metabolize things are all different. And we're inherently biased. And if you can think where, we, where this has come from, it's just, it's organically grown. And I think Eleanor was right. This is not done deliberately. It's just grown out of this. And we're, you know, we're youngsters when we go through medical school, we listen and we believe what people tell us until uh, we start to independently think. 
And then when you look back, you think, well, we've got to this point um, because we just we just got there without thinking about it too much. So the question is, how do you change that? And so to my mind, I think we've got too much in precision oncology based on molecules and genes. I think we should include all those other aspects that we know are different and start to understand them. We include that in how we, how we work, we develop drugs, how we work, we develop um, prevention strategies, how we work in any sort of medical circumstance and factor those in, into the equation because they're, as Eleanor said, if you're missing a key variable, then you're doing bad science. And I would suggest we are doing, I wouldn't say bad science, but slapdash a bit when we do that. Yes. So that, I mean, that's um, in a way slightly, I mean, it makes sense, but it's also quite a troubling big statement. So if there are so many diversities and so many, um, it's so the universe out there of people is so diverse, how do we even begin to address that in the form of planning clinical trials and, and starting to think about that from even um, you know, like an organization like ours where we're making communications for people, where do we draw the line? Like at the moment, I would say we're, we're at one end where we make everything in English, but how far do we need to go in terms of you know, thinking beyond specific mutations and those sort of categories of people where we might be today for a, you know, an EGFR population? How, how do we start to be a little bit more inclusive? Well, well, what, I, what, I, what I'm suggesting is, that is not to keep like that because we'll, 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 we'll disappear down multiple rabbit holes and we'll never get there. What I, what I suppose I'm saying is that we put so much importance on these molecular things, these things we do in the lab, yet we ignore uh, the cultural background, the racial background, the ethnicity, etc., of, uh, of our patients, and they're not factored into clinical trials. Um, people are thinking about how to do it, but you don't you don't necessarily need to split everything by molecules by every one of those variables. You need to understand similarities and differences, but they need to be weighted far stronger than they currently are because we, we just look at the gene and don't look at the patient anymore. So yeah. coming from a genetics guy, that's probably in a lot of trouble, but, uh, but uh, yeah, we, we need to, it's about the patient. So we've always done personalized medicine. We've always done it about the patient, the individual clinical attributes. Now we just have a different tool uh, that we're all so super excited about it. We're, you know, we we not we can't see the forest for the trees. Thank you. Um, I'd like to come to Aurora and um, Pamela together next, uh, with the expertise that I know you guys have in terms of advising organisations like not unlike ours. And I also know Aurora, you previously worked in in the pharma world as well. So where how would you um, how do you see companies like ours in terms of diversity? Let's start with um, how diverse we are as an organization ourselves. Um, but then, you know, I'll, I'll give you a sort of a heads up. We're not, we're not particularly diverse, perhaps, you know, within marketing, within pharma sometimes. So how, how do we, can we, can we make communications um, and, and services which are truly diverse when we're not ourselves? Does that make sense as a question? I'd like to maybe maybe put that to Aurora first. Yeah, um, so it actually makes sense as a question. Um, you know, I have spent over 25 years in corporate America. I've worked in four distinct industries. I spent a significant amount of time in the pharmaceutical industry. And I always uh, comment that most of the time, I was the only black woman in the room, and I absolutely was the only Latina in the room. 
Mm. And while I spent a significant portion of my time ensuring that I was not the only one in the room once I left, um, the reality is, is that when I look across my peer group of who was leading brands, who was driving decisions, um, it was predominantly white peers. Um, the makeup of my team always looked significantly different than most of my team most of my peers. So because I cared, because of my background, and because I understood the importance um, and the imperative of diverse perspectives and a diverse team, I always drove towards that point. And the results of what we were able to accomplish bared out. We connected more with those that we were being charged to serve. We delivered in a much more authentic and engaging way. And it produced bottom and top line impact for the organizations that I participated in. Because sometimes we think of those things as, as exclusive. and They're absolutely not. They are intrinsically linked. And so you start by noticing who's in the room, who's not in the room, <clears throat> what can you do within your power to change that? Mm. And how do we ensure that we truly champion representation and inclusivity to avoid tokenism? Um, maybe Pamela, let's let's bring you in. Sure. Yeah. And I just wanted to actually take a step back briefly because um, I actually spent my entire corporate career in advertising agencies and consultancies. And like Aurora, that's actually how Aurora and I met. I was running a large creative team at a pharmaceutical advertising agency and Aurora was my client. And, um, you know, as Aurora mentioned, you know, who's not in the room? I think for me, certainly when I started in advertising, I predominantly noticed that there were very few women. Um, you know, none of my executive leadership was ever a woman. And as I finally rose through the ranks, I was the only woman. And by the time I met Aurora, you know, she helped open my eyes to start noticing as well how few um, Black people there were. Um, Aurora and I sat in on a panel last week where they, a statistic was shared that in 1978, 5% um, of people working in advertising were Black. And guess what the percentage is today? It's 6%. So um, so that's a roundabout way of getting to your question, which is that we have a lot of work to do. And when I say we, the work is really um, across um, white people because we are the ones who still continue to have that power within ad agencies and ad agency networks to ask the question, where is the representation? What are we doing about it? What am I as a human being bringing every single day in terms of my belief systems and my biases um, you know, that is actually going to help start to model and embody um, the change that I wanna see across this organization? I loved um, in the documentation that um, was shared with us that I think went out to the entire team. You know, There was a, a note in the forward that said, we've all done things that we're going to have to grapple with as we start to look and try to be more inclusive. We're all going to have to go through a process of self-evaluation and recognizing that we've done things that we may now not feel so proud of. Um, and and that, is, um, that is okay. 
And that's the piece that so many white people, especially in ad agency world from, from you know, my experience in the United States, do not want to do. Um, you know, we kind of want to stick to the way things have always been done. And we want to tell ourselves that that's been the path to success and look how successful we are. What, you know, what, what could possibly be missing? And, um, you know, as Aurora said, I think what we've, what we've found and we know is that our ability to include more voices and perspectives and to decenter um, the white experience and perspective actually creates so much more magic um, than anything we can create with homogenous thinking. Yeah, okay. So I, I, I think I get you. I'd like to, um, which kind of brings me on to one of the questions from the, from the, the group, the, the audience. We've had a few come in and, and one of them is, what should good look like in terms of marketing communications? And I think you've you come at it from a you know a particular point of view, like take out some of that perhaps um, white overrepresentation is one way of looking at it. I was kind of just thinking, how would you come at a question like that, Helena, in, in terms of the from the engineering point of view? I'd like to tie it in just with another thought that we had, which was the this com this comment I made earlier about being taught to think in medical school. Um, Sam from our audience has asked, should it be elevated to like thinking about things differently in the national curriculum, for example? So, you know, there's, there's all sorts of thoughts flying around, but let's come back to that question. What should we as an agency do in terms of the communications? What would communication look like? And how do we start to think about changing things for the better, even if it's in the longer term? I, I mean, always, I always tell my students read the exam question. And I think if you're communicating, it's who is your audience? Who are you actually trying to reach? And it's insane if you're targeting 20% of the population. Again, just as we were saying, it's bad science. I mean, that's bad business. <laughs> I personally believe we have a moral imperative to address this as well. But just if you're being very hard-nosed, there's a very strong commercial drive for getting this right. And we, we suffer from it. So, I mean, engineering has a huge problem with over-representation of men. I mean, I'm usually the only woman in the building, not only in the room. Um, it, it's changing a little bit, but very slowly. Um, mm. And I think part of that is making sure that at a very early age, um, we're not giving five, six-year-old girls the impression that engineering and messing around with Lego is for boys. And no, you, you go and play in the little toy kitchen with the dolls. If you want to, that's fine. Um, but don't subconsciously push girls down that route. Um, and I think it, it, the attitudes need changing that early. So yes, I think the national curriculum very, very early, we need to make it normal to have a diverse population doing all the exciting different things that people can do. Another question here from the audience, which perhaps it could be um, Shiron or Andrew um, from personal experience that you've had coming at it from you know, two different ends of the career, which is, is the healthcare professional landscape itself diverse enough to understand and assist patients from different backgrounds. What are your thoughts on that? Perhaps we'll come to Andrew first. Give you time to come off mute, Shiran. Uh, well, um, the easier answer is probably not. Um, but does it need, do they need to be that? Um, they need to understand that. And the problem is not just re re replacing what you've got with something different. It's about a whole thought process, about how you think about this, not about this. I mean, I, I remember, I recount an experience where, because um, I practiced in an area of Sydney was very multicultural. And so 
when people would come and speak to me in broken English, um, I would find myself responding to them using their accented English. Yeah. And somebody once told me that was that was a terrible thing to do. <laughs> and then a little bit later, somebody gave a TEDx talk and actually represented what I was trying to do by saying, you're trying to, and people respond warmly to that. Um, and that made me feel a hell of a lot better. I even emailed and said, thank you very much. I've been feeling so bad about that for years. So it's just being cognizant of that, understanding that. And it's such diversity is such a beautiful thing. I mean, you there's so many rich cultures uh, bringing things together. We don't want to want to be the same. We all want to be different, but we need mm. to understand how to tackle those differences when it comes to important things like healthcare. Sharon, coming to you. Yeah, um, it's a really good question, actually. And I think, as mentioned before by the other panelists, it's about putting these biases and um, issues on people's radar because a lot of the times, even at medical school, we realize that people, I mean, medicine as a whole is sort of targeted towards cis, heterosexual, white males, and then everyone else is the outside. That's that's healthcare in a nutshell. It's changing because people are becoming more aware of these other, you know, biases that exist. But even at a medical school level, we speaking to other students, we're aware that teaching around LGBTQ plus issues is normally around in the context of HIV and AIDS. It completely ignores the real needs of this this community and it just sort of puts people in boxes. So I think there's always more to be done and it's about how do we get make people more aware of these biases. And as we said, like most of the time it's not cognitive and people aren't doing this maliciously, but that's not an excuse. That's not an excuse to continue the way you are. Um, how do we increase people's awareness? That's the key, yeah. Interestingly, I don't know if you've got to, I think it's in fourth year that you come across this, Chiron, but I'm sure um, anyone who's been to med school will be aware with like the, the very vulgar uh, mnemonics you learn for like um, cranial nerves, for example. And I, you know, I can't repeat them because I'll probably lose my job. But they, I mean, <laughs> that, you know, they're like almost like a necessary evil because, oh, they, they help you remember. But I, I don't know. Are they still taught? Do you know what I'm talking about, Chiron? Are they still? Yeah, yeah I know what you're talking about. Um, sexist, <laughs> some of the things that you're, you're you know. But uh, that's an example of things that could change, I, I suspect, if it hasn't already. I think we're coming to the towards the end of our um, discussion, unfortunately. And I know we've had lots come in and we haven't been able to answer everyone's question. I'm going to come up with one final one, which um, can go to John perhaps first. And then um, if anyone else wants to answer it, I know you'll all have an opinion on it. And it would be fascinating to get your opinions on it. Uh, and the question is, how do we provide positive action and not just fall into the trap of positively discriminating um, in terms of what we provide as content and what pharma do from tomorrow onwards? Um, who wants to take this? It, it came in as a question for John. So, John, do you want to do you want to have any any immediate thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I think uh, an immediate thought would come back to I think Sharon um, made the point about the importance really of working in partnership, collaborative, maybe ways with communities. So that's really important. I think there's something to be done around more effective partnership, um, community-based kind of connections that are meaningful uh, and representative for the communications uh, and communities you're trying to access and engage with. Um, I yeah. think that's, 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 that's a, a, an important thing moving forward. Partnerships, I think, is, is, is key. 
Yeah. So going beyond um, token gestures and doing things that are like humanly meaningful. I see you've got your hand up, which is very old school, Eleanor, but <laughs> so polite. How can I? Um, no, I just wanted to, to emphasize what Aurora already said, which is data. The most convincing seminar I've ever been to on diversity. And my heart sinks when another email comes in saying, we really need to do something about EDI and science. And you say, oh, no. This is just going to get everyone's back up. Everyone's going to see it as another yeah. admin task. Whereas this woman, she gave a wonderful talk showing FTSE 100 companies and lots of other organizations when they have improved the diversity of their board, their share prices have gone up, their stability has improved. There are many, many really solid researchers already out there to explain positively why this is a good thing for everybody. And I think that's the message that needs to get out. It's, it, we, we don't hector people for what's gone wrong in the past. We show them why it needs to be good in the future. I knew I was never going to be able to finish on time with uh, so many people who are able to talk for a long time. So let's let's do final, final, final comment from Aurora. Uh, final comment is own the learning. Self-direct, own the learning. There is a plethora, Google. There is a plethora yeah. of documentation, books, 400 years as it relates to Black, Indigenous people of color. Own the learning and step up to that accountability. Each of us can do that starting today. Thank you so much to all of our panelists. Thank you to everyone who has agreed to be involved in Health for All and who have been so generous in sharing their perspectives, their stories, their passion and their talent. From the experts we have engaged with to shape this piece, to the writers we have involved, to the creative talent who have helped bring it to life. The stories from our Health for All contributors will continue throughout 2021. Health for All is a platform developed by Havas Links Group to tackle the ongoing challenges around equity, diversity and inclusivity in healthcare. You can learn more about Health for All over at noonelefbehind.co.uk. Havas Links Group is a global healthcare communications group working predominantly in the pharmaceutical and healthcare space. Our work blends strategic insight and deep scientific understanding with creativity and digital innovation to deliver healthcare campaigns and solutions that really make a difference to people's lives and create an impact that matters. <laughs>